The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Here are a handful more poems through time. Uh, the first comes from Avon Boland, the wonderful Irish poet who was born in 1944 and who only died uh, in 2020. And she has amazing poems about not just being a parent, but of being the parent of a daughter, and this is just one of them. This is called The Making of an Irish Goddess. And you can find nearly everything she wrote. Actually, you can find everything she wrote up until the year 2001 in a book called New Collected Poems. And I think since then, uh, and before her death two years ago, she published two or three other collections. This is The Making of an Irish Goddess by Avon Boland. Series went to hell with no sense of time. When she looked back, all that she could see was the arteries of silver in the rock, the diligence of rivers always at one level, wheat at one height, leaves of a single color the same distance in the usual light, a seasonless, unscarred earth. But I need time, my flesh and that history, to make the same descent. In my body, neither young now nor fertile, and with the marks of childbirth still on it, in my gestures, the way I pin my hair to hide the stitched, healed blemish of a scar, must be an accurate inscription of that agony. The failed harvests, the fields rotting to the horizon, the children devoured by their mothers, whose souls, they would have said, went straight to hell, followed by their own. There is no other way. Myth is the wound we leave in the time we have, which in my case is this March evening at the foothills of the Dublin Mountains, across which the lights have changed all day, holding up my hand, sickle-shaped, to my eyes, to pick out my own daughter from all the other children in the distance, her back turned to me. So if someone asks me now, how do you write poems about myth? Uh, that is one of the ones I will point them to taking the story of the mother going down to 
the underworld to retrieve her daughter. Uh, that is one way of doing it. This next is a first for me, <coughs> a first for this podcast. I asked for listeners to send in uh, poems, uh, favorite poems of theirs that I should read. And I've never been able to get into the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins, who lived from 1844 to 1889, great Irish poet and, uh, and Jesuit. Um, let me see what it, what it does say about him here. But, uh, but a listener sent me a message and said, try this poem, and I think that I will. Um, and uh, if you listen back to the episode called uh, Seamus Heaney's Origin Story, you will hear what it was like for a young Seamus Heaney, a young Catholic in Protestant Northern Ireland, to come across a Catholic poet, a, uh, a member of the clergy, and also one who wrote so powerfully and so strangely. I've never really been able to find my way into these sounds, um, but I think it's worth uh, sharing this anyway and just imagining what happens. And it's a reminder just that, uh, I, that I spent an awful lot of time, I do spend an awful lot of time here on this podcast, talking about uh, what it could possibly mean to have poetry be a larger part of people's lives, and that one way to do that is to look at the kind of poetry that used to be part of people's lives and to somehow find a new way of doing that. Now, um, and in that case, it is narrative poetry, as I've mentioned many times. But uh, every now and then, you come across a peculiar voice and a peculiar force of a voice. The other poet that comes to mind in this vein is William Blake, who was possessed of something enormous. Uh, he had a universe in there, and uh, he didn't care if anybody read him, and he was sure that he would last, and he has. And at the same time, uh, you can hear it, I think, in the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins, a strength and a strangeness of sound and voice that, uh, for whatever reason, uh, he was possessed with this uh this Jesuit, who, as far as I know, wasn't terribly known at all in his lifetime. I think of Whitman here as well. What was it like for Whitman to wander around Brooklyn or New York with the sound of his poetry in his head that was so different from the poetry of his time? And the same thing here. Let's see what it says in his biography here. Um, he converted to Roman Catholicism in 1866 when he was 22, studied for the Jesuit order, 1868 to 77, worked in urban and industrial parishes in Liverpool and elsewhere, appointed to the chair of Greek and Latin at the University College Dublin in 1884, but with a few exceptions, his poetry was not published in his lifetime. And a friend of his... Uh, by the name of uh, Robert Bridges, 
uh, withheld the poems because of their oddity, their quote oddity, until the year 1918. So let's stop stalling and get to it. This is the poem that was requested by a listener for me to read here. Gerard Manley Hopkins, the poem is called That Nature is a Heraclitean Fire and of the Comfort of the Resurrection. Cloud puffball, torn tufts, tossed pillows, flaunt forth, then chevy on air, Built thoroughfare, heavy roisterers. In gay gangs they thrall, they glitter in marches. Down rough cast, down dazzling whitewash, wherever an elm arches. Shive lights and shadow tackle in the long lashes lace, lance and pear. Delightfully the bright wind boisterous, ropes, wrestles, beats earth bare of yester tempest's creases in pool and rut peel parches squandering ooze to squeeze dough crust dust stanches starches squadroned masks and manmarks treadmire toil there foot fretted in it million fueled nature's bonfire burns on but quench her bonniest dearest to her her clearest selvid spark, man. How fast his fire dint, his mark on mind is gone. Both are in an unfathomable. All is in an enormous dark, drowned. O oh, pity and indignation, man-shape, that shone sheer off to several a star. Death blots black out nor mark is any of him at all so stark. But vastness blurs and time beats level. Enough. The resurrection, a heart's clarion. Away, grief's gasping, joyless days, dejection. Across my foundering deck shone a beacon, an eternal beam. Flesh fade and mortal trash fall to the residuary worm world's wildfire leave but ash in a flash at a trumpet at a trumpet crash i am all at once what christ is since he was what i am and this jack joke poor potsherd patch matchwood immortal diamond is immortal diamond And there we have Gerard Manley Hopkins. This next poem is from uh, William Wordsworth. Let's see if it mentions. These are from uh, a series of sonnets that he wrote in 1802, but didn't publish until 1807. And again, uh, pay attention to how um, there are times, and I think it's especially marked here, where we, we assume that the older the poem gets, the more uh, archaic it will sound, or the more strange it will sound. But this is, a, this is an occasion where uh, the stranger-sounding poem can't, comes from, what, 18, 
1870s or so with Gerard Manley Hopkins. This is 70 years, uh, 70 or 80 years before that. And this is a William Wordsworth sonnet. And John Milton, Milton, thou shouldst be living at this hour. And this is what it says. Milton, thou shouldst be living at this hour. England hath need of thee. She is a fen of stagnant waters, altar, sword, and pen, fireside, the heroic wealth of hall and bower, have forfeited their ancient English dower of inward happiness. We are selfish men. O raise up, return to us again, and give us manners, virtue, freedom, power. Thy soul was like a star and dwelt apart, Thou hadst a voice whose sound was like the sea, pure as the naked heavens, majestic, free. So didst thou travel on life's common way in cheerful godliness, and yet thy heart, the lowliest duties on itself, did lay. Now, there's a lot you can say about that. The first is that... Uh, it is an example, I think, of what poets do or what creative people do in general when they find a precursor in their art that they can latch themselves onto. And what they generally do is assume that, uh, well, what Wordsworth is doing is assuming that Milton uh, is perhaps a little bit like Wordsworth. Uh, he sees problems in his country, and he, he assumes that Milton, if he were alive today, would be able to fix it. However, I've never, um, I don't know that, I don't know a terrible, terribly great deal about Milton's life, but I don't know if cheerful godliness uh, uh, describes anything that I do know about Milton's life. Um, and this seems to be an expression that uh, people make uh, every generation or so. Um, England hath need of thee. Um, we are selfish men, O raise us up, return to us again, and give us manners, virtue, freedom, and power. Um, there are voices in every generation that would ask that of poets or prophets or politicians or just venerated members of one's family that lay in the past. And this is a wonderful um, uh, uh, expression of that, of that yearning. Uh, Milton, thou shouldst be living at this hour, England hath need of thee. I can imagine what uh, a poet might write today in America to Walt Whitman or uh, anybody else that you can think of, Allen Ginsberg. Um, uh, America hath need of thee, what would we say? What, uh, what could we fit that into a sonnet? I'm not sure. And it seemed worth going from a poem addressed to John Milton to John Milton himself, and he lived from 1608 to 1674. And I believe, uh, Paradise Lost was published around 1665, I think so. And this comes from the 
final stanza in Paradise Lost, where he describes the expulsion of Adam and Eve from paradise. And again, uh, pay attention here. Now, now we're back to the, this poem being written in the 1660s. But when you know what the setting is and you know what the story is, uh, the, uh, what is happening here, the story of it, uh, is immensely clear and powerful still. So spake our mother Eve, and Adam heard well pleased, but answered not. For now, too nigh the, the archangels stood, and from the other hill to their fixed station, all in bright array, the cher all in bright array, the cherubim descended. On the ground, gliding meteorous as evening mist, risen from a river over the marish glides, and gathers round fast at the laborer's heel, homeward returning. High in front advanced, the brandished sword of God before them blazed, fierce as a comet, which with torrid heat and vapor as the Libyan air dust began to parch the temperate clime, whereat in either hand the hastening angel caught our lingering parents, and to the eastern gate led them direct, and down the cliff as fast to the subjected plain, then disappeared. They, looking back, all the eastern side beheld of paradise, so late their happy seat, waved over by that flaming brand, the gate with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They, hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden took their solitary way. And I will read the last two sentences of that, the last handful of lines over again. It is incredible. Uh, you can imagine uh, John Milton blind, as he was, um, reciting this to his daughter, who was the one writing the poem down, uh, coming to the end of this great work that he had uh, been readying himself for all his life. The only reason I know anything about John Milton's life is because I had heard somewhere that uh, he set out from the very beginning to be an epic poet, and he set aside uh, a great deal of time, I think his late 20s and early 30s, uh, to just read as much as he possibly could. And um, there's a new biography of Milton that just came out, and I read a review of it that added the detail that he also believed that it was a poet's duty to be chaste as well, and he was sort of mocked for that when he was uh, at university. Um, he was not saving himself for marriage. He was saving himself uh, for poetry. But you consider uh, 1608, and uh, if it was written in the 1660s or so, uh, he's in his 50s. When he writes the poem, his 50s or 60s, when he finishes it, um, this is something he's been trying to do his entire life, and he has lived through the English Civil War, 
he has seen a king, a monarch, beheaded, and uh, he has gone blind. Um, from what I remember, his daughters, other than writing the poem down, uh, weren't all that nice to him, although you can imagine perhaps John Milton wasn't the best dad either. Uh, all of these things coming in, but he has finally finished this poem about uh, the, uh, the fall of human beings and along the way made uh, the character of Satan into a kind of anti-hero. Um, so the, the, uh, the last few lines again. They, looking back, all the eastern side beheld of paradise, so late their happy seat. Waved over by that flaming brand, the gate with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They, hand in hand with wandering steps and slow, through Eden took their solitary way. And solitary in, in the sense that it's just the two of them, but since it is the two of them, uh, they aren't solitary at all, are they? That's been one of the great lessons of, uh, of uh, Judaism, at least for me, is that uh, as much as I admire and still love to study monasticism in all of its forms, whether Christian or Hindu or Buddhist or otherwise, um, there is no monasticism in Judaism. There is hardly ever, except in extremes on the edge, uh, schools or sects that demand uh, celibacy or denying uh, the body uh, its needs so that one can have a family and keep the generations going. And, and that is seen as one of the reasons why uh, God in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden sees it as necessary to make a um, uh, to make a companion for Adam. Um, if you followed the advice of some of the Christian monastics in the Middle Ages, who literally seemed to believe that they were holier than everybody else and they were living the kind of life that God wanted them to uh, in their monasteries, you would imagine that the book of Genesis would actually have God uh, setting Adam up uh, building him a little cloister and uh, letting him uh, copy manuscripts there. That is not actually the story. Um, so, through Eden took their solitary way can be taken in many, many ways. This last poem goes back even further, and I think it's probably the oldest one I've read here so far. And this comes from Sir Philip Sidney. From his... Uh, from his sonnet collection, Astrophil and Stella. I wanted to read something about Philip Sidney here. Because I'm not sure if I will read any of his other work here or not. Um, he lived from 1554 to 1586, so he was 32 years old when he died. Uh, he was the, there's a biography of him that calls him the courtier poet. He married a woman named Frances, the daughter of Sir Francis Walsingham, 
and Walsingham was sort of the ur-CIA MI5, MI6 spymaster for Queen Elizabeth. So uh, Sidney was involved in, uh, in, in that whole circle. And uh, it says that none, none of his major work was printed during his lifetime. Although I'm not sure, does that mean that it, uh, it uh, was distributed in manuscript to a few people or literally nobody saw any of this? I'm not sure. I assume that somebody must have during his lifetime because when Shakespeare came to write his sonnets and, um, and who else? Of course, the name is escaping me right now. Um, Edmund Spencer. Uh, I believe that Spencer and Sidney were the sonnet examples for Shakespeare that he was trying to match with his sequence. But in any case, this is a wonderful poem about someone who is in love, who is trying to find the words to describe that love in other people's writing, but uh, only comes to realize that he should be the one doing the writing at the very end. So this is a nice poem uh, about writing from, what would we say, the 1580s or so. Loving in truth, and fain in verse my love to show, that she, dear she, might take some pleasure of my pain. Pleasure might cause her read, reading might make her know, knowledge might pity win, and pity grace obtain. I sought fit words to paint the blackest face of woe, studying inventions fine, her wits to entertain, oft turning other leaves to see if thence would flow, some fresh and fruitful showers upon my sun-burned brain. But words came halting forth, wanting invention's stay. Invention nature's child fled stepdane study's blows, and others' feet still seemed but strangers in my way. Thus great with child to speak, and helpless in my throes, biting my truant pen, Beating myself for spite. Fool, said my muse to me, look in thy heart and write. So get it done yourself. Look into your own heart and write the poem that you want to read. That wonderful word in, in the second last line, biting my truand pen, T-R-E-W-A-N-D, is uh, a version of truant. And uh, that's nice to see there as is uh, the best expression I've ever read of seeing that other poets' poems are getting in the way. Others' feet, that is, their metrical lines, and others' feet still seemed but strangers in my way. It's a wonderful thing. Let me read that last, that last stanza again. But words came halting forth, wanting inventions stay. Invention, nature's child, fled stepdame studies blows, and others' feet still seemed but strangers in my way. Thus great with child to speak, and helpless in my throes, biting my truant pen, beating myself for spite, 
Fool, said my muse to me, look in thy heart and write. And that is actually what I'm going to go do right now. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.